Welcome to Love Your Library, Hampshire Libraries podcast. I'm Kate Price McCarthy here with my co-host Hattie Dulac. Hello, Hattie. Hi, Kate. It's good to be here for another edition of the podcast. And thanks to our supporter, BorrowBox, our library app that allows you to download ebooks and audiobooks straight to your phone or tablet. All you need is your library membership number and PIN. At the time of recording this episode, we're right in the midst of this year's Winter Reading Challenge. It is a perfect time to stay cosy and read a good book. The Winter Reading Challenge is a great way to keep the kids entertained and also to encourage a love of reading and listening to stories. Books and audiobooks that are shared count towards each child's full book challenge. You'll find more about this year's Winter Reading Challenge on our website, where you'll also see details of just some of the thousands of children's books and audiobooks you can download for free. And we've seen a really great response so far, with more than a thousand keen readers taking part, and a good chunk of those have finished their four books already. Books have been a real lifesaver for all of us in this horrible winter so far, in that they've given us the chance to escape into a different world. At the moment, I'm finding myself indulging in books from faraway lands and fantastical regions more than ever before. I think my mind is craving adventure while my body's stuck indoors. One of the best providers of escapism is the romantic novelist Katie Ford, our guest author this episode. Her latest book, A Wedding in the Country, comes out in a couple of weeks' time. And later in the podcast, we'll be joined by Mandy and Charlotte from Andover Library, who'll be recommending some of their recent favourites. But first, it's our guest author, Katie Ford, a very popular author among borrowers from Hampshire Libraries. Even if you've never read a Katie Ford novel, you'd probably recognise one if you saw it on a bookshelf. Featuring her idiosyncratic looping signature and romantic sketches on the covers, they're a familiar sight on public transport, in bookshops and, of course, in libraries everywhere. She's written about 30 books, each exploring a different professional background, all with a romantic love story at its heart, which, despite twists and turns along the way, always has a happy ending. She's a great believer in doing lots of research for her books, mainly, I think, because she really enjoys it. She spent her first few books were based very much of her in her own life experiences. But after she'd exhausted all of that information, she then spent time working as a porter in an auction house, delving behind the scenes of a dating website. She's even been on a Ray Mears survival course, as you'll hear in the interview. So she loves that part of the research and it really brings the stories to life. Above all, though, Katie believes falling in love is the best thing in the world, and she wants all her characters to experience it and her readers to share their stories. Here's Katie when I met up with her online to talk about A Wedding in the Country, her latest love story. With your new book, A Wedding in the Country, the story opens in London in the spring of 1963, when Lizzie, the heroine of the story, is in the midst of a cookery class run by the rather intimidating Madame Wilson. Could you tell us a bit about how the story unfolds from here? Well, apart from that, that is the cookery course that I went on, although not in 1963. To be honest, I did mine in the 70s, but I just thought the 60s are more fun. So I thought I'd write about the 60s. It goes on, she meets other people on the course who are girls quite unlike the girls she's been at school with. She lives in the home counties and she went to the local high school and she's got nice friends called Rosemary and Elizabeth and, you know, things like that. 
And suddenly she's in the middle of these debutantes who are called things like Saskia and <laughs> Selena and all these posh names, which, you know, she's not really used to. Learning to cook food she's never heard of. I remember I'm the only person that my children know who still refers to avocado pears. <laughs> Everyone else calls them avocados. <laughs> they were a new thing, I remember. So going to a cookery school with all these new things and learning about food was a big, big shock to her. And so she and her friends, basically, they have adventures, they give dinner parties, things go wrong. Um, and she learns a lot in, in the book. She learns a lot. And I'm now writing a book about one of the other two girls. There's going to be three books about these three girls that have their own stories. And they, it's not really a trilogy because I think somebody said, oh, you have to have a narrative arc. And I just thought, narrative arc? What on earth is a narrative arc? I think I'll just, no, no, just three stories. You know? None of that narrative arc nonsense. <laughs> so it's going to be about they all have adventures following on. But they meet each other and they become friends. And in a way, their friendship is the most important thing in the book and how they support each other through difficult times. And also it, it goes into how different life was. In when I got married, my mother said what I should have. And I said, yes, mummy. Uh, and now when my daughter got married um, and she decided, I just said, oh, darling, that sounds lovely. <laughs> you know, complete difference. When this book was set, it was the mother who said what you had for your wedding, pretty much. It's a really interesting time to set a love story because it's not just about the wedding where the mother would have such control, but also much more about the choice of who you got married. There's a theme of this as well about people being sort of pressurised into getting married because that's what's expected of them. And I like to think that this the 1960s is a time when we started having a bit more independence away from our parents. So do you think romance has changed very much for, since the 60s? Yes, I think it has. But what I found was very interesting about the 60s when I researched it, because although I had been there, as I say, I'd been a child and I wanted to find out more. Actually, women's lib was not really part of it then. And what women had to do, then they were encouraged, yes, you were allowed to go and have a job before you were married or even when you were first married, which was different. But you still had to do all the cooking and all the cleaning and all the shopping. So your lunch hour was spent rushing around the shops. And you got home and you didn't, you know, you just threw your shopping bags down and put on your pinny and started cooking. I mean, women were very unliberated, although the pill and everything was supposed to liberate them. Actually, they still did all the domestic stuff and it was quite old fashioned. It wasn't really till the 70s that women began to break out a bit more. It's been said that this is the most autobiographical of your novels, you transplanting the 70s <laughs> to the 60s. But I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I'd be interested to know how closely Lizzie's story mirrors your own experience of London. Her experience wasn't quite the same as mine because I was born in London and I had a London life. Although we went to, we moved to Wimbledon when I was quite young. Honestly, her life wasn't quite the same as mine. Life was different for me. But the wedding aspect of it with her mother making all the plans um, <laughs> was completely the same as mine. I mean, my feeling at the time was that I didn't really care about the wedding. For me, 
It was the marriage that was important. And I have to say that I think sometimes people get that muddled up now and it's all about the wedding and it's not about all the rest of their lives. It's only one day when really it's the rest of your life that you've got to be thinking about and how that's going to work. You did go to a cookery school as, as Lizzie did do. Did you have meet a bunch of girlfriends in the same way that she did? I did meet a bunch of girlfriends. I didn't ever live, I, I still lived in Wimbledon. I used to travel up every day on the tube. Now, one of Lizzie's new friends that she she makes in London is, is David, who's an actor who also sells antiques at Portobello Market. Now, David is gay, and it's interesting to see how much of an issue that was for this group of friends. They couldn't tell their parents, for example, that he was gay. Is that something that you can remember happening in the 70s? I don't remember it happening. We did have a gay teacher at school. Everybody knew he was gay. It wasn't actually a big issue, really. The gayness was just a tiny part of lovely George Erskine Jones, who taught us modern dance. But you know, it was illegal. Mm. You know, people did have to keep it quiet. And Lizzie's parents were very conventional. They would have made a had a huge fuss. Although, of course, um, from the point of view of somebody looking out for you, who better than a lovely gay man who has got a lot of caring instincts and knows a lot of stuff and isn't ever going to jump on you? I mean, you couldn't get a better protector in many ways, and yet they did have to be secretive about it. So you've you've talked about the stories following Lizzie's friends, but do you think there might be a story in there for David as well? I'd love to see that one. Well, he was a great character. I don't suppose I'd ever make a man the centre of a story, but I'm currently writing about Alexandra, who is one of the three friends, and David comes into her life more in in the next book because he was a very important person in her life. And I thought people wanted to know more about him because he was lovely. I didn't want to waste him. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I loved so many of the details you included, like the fact that olive oil at the time was only available from the chemist as a treatment for blocked ears. Now, I've told my children this before and they haven't believed me. And so I'm impressed with, well, either your memory or how much of this was research, looking things like that up. Well, my memory did me quite well. And of course, I've talked to a lot of people. I read quite a lot of books about the 60s. I looked at cookery books, which always tell you, even when I've been writing other things, I've always found that cookery books will tell you quite a lot about society, which is quite an interesting sociological fact, I suppose. I read Elizabeth David, who was very much, um, that was her moment. Um, our cookery teacher, she thought Elizabeth David was just wonderful, obviously, because they were. Um, she was French and Elizabeth David talks a lot about French cookery. And she actually gave any of the girls who were engaged on the cookery course were given a, a four pack of Elizabeth David books. And I was engaged when I went on the course. And so I got this pack and I they were my Bible. And she talks a lot about food and it does tell you about society. Having this 1960s setting is is quite a departure from your other books, which tend to be set in contemporary times. So what made you decide to uh, step back in time for this book? Well, my friend Jo Thomas, who's also a writer, she said, oh, you've never written about that cookery course. And she said, I see it as a television. And I said, yeah, I see it as a novel. And I'd love to do that but I'd set it in the 60s because I thought if I want to write about a cookery course, I wouldn't know anything about a modern cookery course. It would be so different. And it was the sociological aspect of it. Um, You know, the debutantes who just led such different lives. I remember once on the course, 
somebody running up to me and saying, Katie, Katie, what's a clove? Because this person was the daughter of a, an earl and she wasn't allowed in the kitchen. And people did used to come to me for help because although I wasn't a cook, I had lived a normal life and been in the kitchen and, you know, made the odd cake. I sort of knew a little bit about cooking. Um, and these people, you know, they didn't know about the cooking equipment. They didn't know about often they didn't know about the ingredients but what they did know was good food because they'd been fed well but they didn't know you know the connection between the food and the ingredients I was quite surprised to find you haven't written historical fiction before if you can class 1960s as historical as I understand that Georgette Heyer was one of your favourite writers of love stories which I, I know is a top favourite of Stephen Fry as well uh, what, it, what was it about what is it about Georgette Heyer novels you, you loved so much? I had to write a, a little article about this recently, and I think it's the characterization so spot on and so vivid. And you can, and her dialogue also, you can read her dialogue and take out who is speaking and still know who is speaking by what they say and their speech patterns. Sadly, in the contemporary world, people's speech patterns are much more similar. And I think it was the characterization, I think it was the humor. I think it was knowing that being beautiful wasn't the be-all and end-all. I mean, a lot of Georgette Heyer's characters are very beautiful, but they're not all. And it's not the beauty that wins them the handsome hero. It's their character, it's strength of character, it's intelligence, it's ingenuity. And all those things that if you're not beautiful, you can actually think, well, it's all right, you don't have to be beautiful because I can be X, Y, and Z. I think at the time when I was growing up, looking the part was just as important as it is now. I mean, nowadays it's worse because everyone's got Instagram and you take photographs of yourself all the time, looking either beautiful or not beautiful. But even then, you know, we had uh, magazines and if you didn't look like Twiggy, and I never did, you had to feel, well, I've got to have something else to offer. And um, actually, I quickly found that people didn't really care very much how you looked. I mean, not for long. You might initially think, oh, okay, how this person looks all this. But then once they start to talk to you, and it's the same, you know, you can, we've all spoken, talked to really handsome men. You think, oh, my God, he's so boring. Let me move on <laughs> to this little short one. <laughs> Absolutely, quite right. Now, I would describe a wedding in the country as like the perfect antidote for the miserable winter we're having at the moment. It's kind of just what we need to get us through the next few months. What, oh, do you, thank you. what do you think it is about romantic fiction that is so uplifting? I think love itself is very uplifting. And we can't be falling in love every week because A, it would be exhausting and B, you can't actually find that many people to fall in love with because for me I don't know if I'm different but I don't fall in love you know I've been married for nearly 50 years but when I you know I think back to my courting days I don't think I fell in love very often really before I stopped falling in love and got married but I love the feeling I think it's terrific feeling and you can get that feeling again through books and you can have all the excitement of thrill of the chase which is I think what we miss when we're finally married, initially you think, phew, I don't have to do that anymore. And then after about 20 years, been to think, oh, well, you know, it was quite fun. But you can have all that in a safe environment. And also you can be really young again. 
because we can all remember being young, even if we're not young anymore. It doesn't seem that far away because I think a lot of people, almost everyone I know, feels a lot younger than they are. And occasionally you'll be sort of caught out. You think, oh, no, 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 actually, no, I'm, I'm 60. Because in your head, you're, you know, you're 27 and you've forgotten. I think that's why people love stories. I think they lift people out of their everyday I read somewhere, and I just thought this was wonderful, that if you could make a drug that gave you the same sensation as falling in love, you would be the first one on that dodgy street corner queuing up to buy it. I think I might might have said that. <laughs> but I certainly believe it. I certainly believe it. I would be down there. <laughs> <laughs> I was really interested to read about the research you do when you're writing your books. Could you tell me, first of all, why research is so important to you? And also, I'd love to hear more about the research you did for the book Summer of Love. Summer of Love. Oh, that was the one with the internet dating. Well, I was quite lucky with that one, actually, because it just so happened that my daughter had rented her flat to someone who worked for an online dating site. So I was able to go behind the scenes. And I get the feeling you really enjoy doing the research that's needed for uh, for whatever book you're writing. I love doing research. I mean, it's almost my favourite part. It's partly because you meet people who are really enthusiastic about what they do. And that is always very, very inspiring. And Summer of Love, of course, had a, an explorer in it. And I couldn't meet an explorer, unfortunately. So I couldn't be enthused by a real person, probably just as well. Might have run off with him. Um, so I went on a Ray Mears course instead. And that was amazingly good fun. I mean, it was quite challenging because of the Lou situation, I have to say. But it, it was that was super fun. And I really feel if it wasn't for the Lou situation, I would like to do more of it. It was really life enhancing. I recommend anyone doing it, actually. I think you know lots of people would get a lot out of it. Hearing, hearing you uh, talk about it has almost made me tempted to do it, but <laughs> I might have to think about that one. Now you've talked think about it. I will t- I will think about it. Maybe when the weather's a bit nicer. Now you've talked a bit about which I'm really excited to hear about following the stories of her friends uh, in in other books. But is there anything else you're working on and and also when can we expect to see the next one if not necessarily the trilogy but when can we expect to see the next one coming out? Well, the next one will be about, you know, the same a, a year on. I mean, I'm still in early early stages. But I must say, Alexandra is a fun character to write with. It's interesting. I always knew I was going to write about the three girls. And when I was writing about Lizzie and I thought about writing about Alexandra, I thought, oh, I'm not really, I'm not interested in her because I wasn't focusing on her. But now I think about her life. I'm finding that hugely good fun. So I'm hoping that I would just fall in love with them each as they come along. And in an ideal world, I do a fourth book which involves them all, but I can't think of an idea, although there's lots of time, so I don't need to worry about not having an idea. One may well come to me. I came away from chatting with Katie, thinking she kind of lives the ideal life. She's sitting there in her gorgeous kitchen, She clearly loves doing the research for her books and she obviously loves writing love stories. And she knows exactly what she's doing when she puts a love story together. She's a real master of her craft, but she does it with such care and with a great sense of fun. On to the next section of the podcast, for which we're joined by Mandy and Charlotte from Andover Library to talk about some of the books they've read recently. We'll include links to all the books we mention on our episode show notes. And don't forget, you can always search for them on BorrowBox and read or reserve right away. 
So welcome to the Hampshire Libraries podcast, Mandy and Charlotte. Thank you for inviting us. Now, you might remember when Mandy and Charlotte first joined us on the podcast 18 months ago to talk about the salt path and behind the scenes at the museum. You'll find that podcast on our website or on your episode listing on your podcast platform of choice. It's the one with the interview with Charlie Higson back in August 2019. And we'll make sure that we include some of those links in our episode show notes as well. I had not been to Andover Library before I met up with you both to record that episode, uh, but it's it's right in the heart of the Andover Shopping Centre, isn't it? It is, yes. We're part of the Enchantry Centre. We've had updated signage since then, so hopefully it'll be easier to find as well. <laughs> Excellent. And I think I'm right in saying that you've got quite an active social media following too, which must be helpful when you're not as able to connect with library visitors in person as it is at the moment. Yeah, we've been really lucky with our social media. We've got a fantastic social media team um, in Andover um, who are doing a fantastic job. Um, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram now as well. Brilliant. We'll make sure that we include some of those links in, um, in our episode notes as well. Now, Mandy, you're one of the library staff who've been choosing books for our Ready Read service. Would you mind telling us a bit about how it works and also how you go about choosing books for borrowers? So basically, the customer requests um, a certain number of books. So you do get to know them. And I know some of them better than others. But particularly with the children's ones, I do know the vast majority of the families that are requesting books. So I can sort of go around the beautiful children's library we've got here, which I absolutely adore, and sort of pick the books that I think, or I know that Archie, for example, would love that. And I know that Susan would love that. And we get some really positive feedback. And we can do that again with the adult ones. Um, We have loads and loads of beautiful new books in most weeks. So we tend to offer those up to the customers. And on the whole, the feedback that we get is hugely positive. It's opened them up to different authors and different genres. And so therefore widening their sort of, you know, their sort of reading list, if you like. I think it's an amazing service. I'm so pleased that we're able to do it. Yeah, absolutely. I think to let experts choose your books for you is one of the real great benefits of the service. And and it lets you do what you do best, which is using that knowledge and expertise to introduce people to books they love. When you hand over a pile of books, particularly to a child, they just can't wait to have a quick look at them. It's like, wow, look what I've got here. And oh, look what I've got this week. And so, yeah, it's it's really rewarding, actually. And thank goodness we can do it. Sounds like you're giving them a, a present. It's like Christmas Day when they come and open their, their package of books up. So you've got a couple of recommendations for books that are available on BorrowBox, ones that people can download for free. And now, Charlotte, can I start with you? What book are you going to talk to us about? Oh, well, this book was one of the surprise word of mouth hits of 2020. Um, it's funny, touching, full of red herring, murder mystery. Thursday Murder Club by Richard Offman. This book is set in a retirement village. We join a, a group of four friends, Elizabeth, Joyce, Ibrahim and Ron. It's a beautiful book and it's so nice to see. We've got older characters who still have a lease of life and they're not a second thought and they are our main focus. So what did you think of the book and how did you find Richard Osman as the author? who's obviously not known as a novelist, but rather the brilliant mind behind TV shows like Pointless and House of Games. Were you expecting something different from him? And how did he meet your expectations? 
This was such a pleasant surprise. It grabbed me right from the start. So much fun to read. And it was so clever, which I think is what you expect from Richard Osman. So, and, and setting the novel in a retirement home was such a brilliant idea. It gave scope for, for such interesting ideas and for pensioners with personality and, and that attitude of they've seen so much in their life. They're just gonna crack on. I fell in love with every single one of those characters. I think it, it trod that really difficult line as well, where you've got amateur detectives and them not being cleverer than the police. And actually the way that they interacted with Donna, the, the police officer, was, was really good. She trod a really careful line of not giving away too much sensitive information, but still working with them. And so actually it felt more like a partnership rather than outsmarting the police, which is often what you end up with with that kind of amateur detective novel. I was really interested by the way he made this group of elderly people the centre of the novel, which is so unusual. And, and I think he did that so well. It wasn't ever patronising. And it always had me in mind of like Alan Bennett, which I was really not expecting from, uh, from Richard Mosman. And that he had really careful observation about the sort of vocabulary and phrases that people in that age group uh, might tend to use. So I, I did think that was beautifully done. It was such a great sort of old-fashioned style murder mystery as well that somehow wasn't old-fashioned at all when you read it, but it was that real traditional kind of murder mystery with those red herrings and that twist in the tail. Yeah, and I, I found it really hard to solve, and it, it did have me guessing right to the right to the very end. As you were saying, it's really unexpected from Richard Osman. I thought we'd end up with some kind of cynical, wisecracking jibes throughout, but actually, it was really sensitively written. I read in an interview that he wrote it in secret, didn't share it with anyone, and I think that really helped. Yeah, I'm so pleased we're going to get a second one as well later this year. I think it's due to publish September. So that's definitely going to be on my um, my list to pick up later in the year as well. It really has sort of skyrocketed in terms of its popularity. You're seeing it on everyone's end of year reading list. You're seeing it all over the place, rave reviews everywhere. So absolutely, what a recommendation. And, and a brilliant book. And I uh, I did listen to it as an audio book, uh, which was Leslie Manville was the uh, narrator. I downloaded it from uh, Borrowbox and I thought she did a really beautiful job. I think she struggled a bit with some of the accents when she was doing some of the voices, but I, I thought she did it beautifully. So we've been talking about The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. And we've got another pick from the shelves of Borrowbox, which is The Chalet by Catherine Cooper. There are a few similarities, but also a lot of differences between this and Richard Osman's book. Mandy, would you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, of course I will. So um, my read is called The Chalet, um, written by Catherine Cooper. This is a book that I saw recommended as you know, a new thriller that was coming out. And I thought, oh, this sounds just up my street. I'd better reserve this as quickly as possible. And I was so excited one day when I saw a copy come in and I thought, that's mine. And sadly, it went off to a, another customer. And I, I absolutely adore reading, but this is probably one of the best books I've read for a very long time. It's, it is your sort of classic thriller and it's set in the most beautiful skiing resort. I am a really bad skier. And I do go off on the odd skiing holiday, supposedly with my husband, who's a brilliant snowboarder. And really for me, it's just about getting the hot chocolate afterwards and the, the blue vine in the evening. Um, so I was sort of really interested to know what, what they sort of talk about as around sort of skiing with this. But it's set in the most amazing, beautiful chalet. And the author, Catherine, just paints the most 
livid descriptions of how gorgeous these chalets are with enormous plate glass windows and bow throws everywhere and the most amazing chalet girls and fabulous bedrooms and showers and things like that. And you do see these places and you just look at them in awe. So it, yeah, we've got these four characters that meet up for a, a skiing holiday. Some of them haven't met each other before and there is sort of some rather interesting relationships and you're, you're sort of quizzing yourself quite a lot as to, I'm not sure what the relationship is between him and her, for example, and where they fit in. But basically it pads back between 1998 and 2018. And in 1998, two people were skiing and one of them goes missing. And the body up until then has never, ever been found. So if we then go up to the present day, and we have these four rather sort of disparate people meeting in a chalet with all the luxury that it entails. And then suddenly a body has been found. I think one of the best things about Catherine's writing is that she is a, a well-traveled person herself and she's also a brilliant skier as well as journalist. So her writing is just, it just enables her to just bring all of those really important aspects together and just paints the most amazing scene for you. It was amazing to hear that this is her debut novel, her first novel, although, as you say, she's already a, a, an established writer. I felt this was really quite an assured start for a writer. You didn't ever feel it was a debut. Yeah, it didn't read like a a debut novel at all it, it was gripping from the first page it just kind of put you into this world and the way the story was told it's between sort of flashbacks and the present day it all just kind of came together and I never quite worked out exactly what was going on until we got there which is great you do have a few suspicions as you go through and then it's sort of like oh no I'm completely wrong on that one and I did get a little bit confused at times as to this it goes back to this sort of narrative um, written by a child and I was I did get a little bit confused at that point as to who is this child and then you as the book moves forward you start to think yeah I reckon I know who this child actually is but yeah as you say it's a debut novel but the last line in the book does give me hope that there will be a sequel because there is still work to be done apparently how do you think that these this sort of story with the layers timelines worked I'm generally not a huge fan of when things ping pong backwards and forwards I'm not I don't particularly like that style of writing but I do think for this one it worked really well I didn't get confused. I could see my, you know, I could see the, what was going on in 1998 and then I could see it brought almost like bang up to date with what was going on in that chalet and the, the relationships and the conversations and, and then all those sort of little thoughts that you get about, yeah, I think I can see what's going to fall into place now. But there are still some surprises as you go through. I think she did a brilliant job of ranking up the tension by using the, those dual timelines. Uh, but I did feel the characters, none of them were particularly sympathetic. But actually, unusually, that didn't bother me. I found them intriguing. C completely, yeah. Particularly Rhea, who I think um, maybe Rhea isn't quite the Rhea that um, she's, she's made out to be. I think, there's, I think there's more to Rhea, which may well come in the next book, I'm hoping, to be honest. And then there's Louisa 
who was at the very beginning of the book. And I think she's possibly the character that I felt most sorry for because she was just so desperate to fit in with these two guys in 1998. And really, she wasn't geared up for that sort of skiing posh holiday. And she just so desperately wanted to fit in and, and be one of them. Her miserable experience of, of skiing for the first time, I had so much sympathy with. I love that section because it's absolutely my own experience of skiing. And I have to say, it hasn't encouraged me to want to try again. Yeah, I mean, all, all the descriptions about trying to get the skis on and then falling over and taking forever just to get her feet into the cliffs is just you think yeah I can just see this it's it's not as glamorous as it's as it's made out to be sometimes and most of the time you are just wet and cold and queuing for a ski lift okay we've been talking about the chalet by Catherine Cooper as well as the Thursday murder club by Richard Osman both are available to reserve and download from our audiobook and ebook provider borrowbox Thanks for both those suggestions, Mandy and Charlotte. We look forward to seeing you both in Andover Library as soon as we're able to. Thank you for inviting us along today, Kate. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. There are a few important topics Hampshire Libraries are going to be focusing on this month. First off, it's LGBTQ plus History Month, and we'll have details about what we're doing to mark this celebration on our library blog, along with a specially collated collection of titles on Borrowbox. It's also Children's Mental Health Awareness Week in the first week of February. This is an awareness week, which we always like to mark since books can do so much to help with mental health. But this year, I think we'll all agree it's more vital than ever. You'll find more information on this topic on our library blog, as well as across our social media and within our Borrowbox collection. And if that wasn't enough, we also have National Storytelling Week at the start of February. Once again, we'll have lots more information about this celebration on our blog and also on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Okay, it's now the time in the podcast where we talk about a few of our new unlimited titles on Borrowbox this month. These are audiobooks and ebooks that you don't have to wait for, even if loads of other people have borrowed them. You'll find the full list on our podcast notes, but we'll just mention a few here. One of these new unlimited titles is Russell Brand's book, Recovery. According to Matt Haig, this book offers a real insight into addiction and the stuff that drives it. And there's also my absolute favourite, The Sentence's Death by Anthony Horowitz, which is available as an audiobook read brilliantly by Rory Kinnear. This book follows The Word is Murder, which is the first in um, Anthony Horowitz's Daniel Hawthorne series. I was so pleased to hear Anthony say he's working on a third in the series when we interviewed him for a recent podcast. As he says... This series turns the usual detective format on its head in that the narrator, who's normally the one with all the answers, is the one who's the most clueless. I finished that one recently and it is just brilliant. I can't wait to read what he comes up with next because it's just, as you say, it's so interesting, isn't it? I love the character Daniel Hawthorne as well. He's like, obviously there are a lot of parallels and I think it's very intentional. There are a lot of parallels with Sherlock Holmes and, and sort of aloofness and bluntness uh, and cool, calm, calculated kind of attitude. I just, but I, I'm really, I really find characters like that that aren't your typical sympathetic characters. Um, I, I really like them. <laughs> Absolutely. I wasn't exaggerating when I said to Anthony Horowitz that Daniel Hawthorne's one of my favourite characters in fiction. He's such an interesting character. Another book on Borrowbox is Fragile by Stella O'Malley, in which this psychotherapist and best-selling author 
delves into why we are feeling more anxious, stressed and overwhelmed than ever. I'm really intrigued by this book. I haven't started it yet, but I think it sounds so interesting. And finally, I'll just mention An Anonymous Girl by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekkanen, the authors behind the bestseller The Wife Between Us. This is another really clever thriller. As always, one of these featured titles for February is also our virtual book club choice. You'll find links to this online reading group, which we call Digital Readers, on Hampshire Library's Facebook page. So download the book and join the conversation through our Hampshire Library's Facebook group. That means that there's just time to say thank you to BorrowBox for supporting this podcast. Don't forget, you can use BorrowBox to download ebooks and audiobooks for free with Hampshire Libraries. That's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kate Price McCarthy. And I'm Hattie Dulac. <laughs>